As we come once again to the time of year when we're celebrating Christ's passion, his death, and his resurrection, I think it is only fitting that we turn to the most significant events of his final days on earth. We're going to start tonight with his anointing by Mary in the town of Bethany. And this story is found in all four Gospels, but we're going to turn on our Bibles tonight to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The title of this message, if you're into titles, is Give and Take. At this point in the story, Jesus has nearly come to the end of that long trek to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He knows he's going to be crucified when he gets to Jerusalem. Immediately before this, in chapter 11, Jesus had raised Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, from the dead. And in this story, we're going to see two primary figures aside from Jesus. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Judas Iscariot, the disciple of Jesus who would betray him not many days later. Each of these lives had been transformed by Jesus of Nazareth. Both of them were disciples of his. But the motivations of their hearts were very different. And their destinies, as we will see, were inverted images of one another. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We can either be givers or takers when it comes to God. Jesus has commanded us to give our lives away. And he's warned us about what happens to those who cling to their lives too closely. Tonight, we're all going to be put to the question by the Holy Spirit. Are you a giver or are you a taker when it comes to God? If you're a giver then abundant eternal life will be yours. But a taker is destined for a lonely grave of their own making. Let's read John 12, 1 through 8 together. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is a short story, but it's a significant one in Jesus's life. Other than asides from the narrator, this is the first indication we as readers have that Judas's heart is rotten on the inside. Up to this point, there was no reason to suspect that he was anything other than a faithful disciple, like Andrew or Thomas or Levi. And this story is also the redemption of Mary. This is her act of repentance before the Lord. The last time we saw her, she seemed to have lost her faith. And yet here she is at Jesus' feet. This is where we first met Mary, actually, sitting at Jesus' feet. She lived with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. When Jesus came to their house in their small town, the village, the text says, Martha was working to be a good hostess, to take care of everybody at the house. 
But Mary sat at Jesus' feet to hear him teach. Martha was angry, and she ordered Jesus to send her sister back to work where she belonged. But the Lord answered her in Luke 10, 41-42, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary loved Jesus, and he refused to deprive her of his word. The Lord had a soft spot in his heart for this little family. They seemed to have been poor. They were probably young, considering they were unmarried and still living together. Perhaps they saw Jesus as a big brother or like a father figure. That, I think, is why it stung Mary so badly when Jesus delayed to come and heal her brother when he took sick. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus was already dead and buried. Mary didn't even bother to come and greet Jesus when he arrived. When Martha finally made her come to him, all she could say was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it was at that point we have that verse where Jesus famously wept. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and now they're celebrating. Mary's doubts have been overcome by the power of Christ, and now she anoints him with this costly perfume in an act of sincere repentance. Judas, however, did not appreciate what Mary did. And for those of us reading the story for the first time, it might surprise us that he would react so strongly. After all, Judas was one of the twelve. His life had been affected by Jesus no less than Mary's had. Judas Iscariot had been hand-picked to be one of the twelve disciples. After a long night of prayer and fasting, Jesus came down the mountain and picked him by name. He went with Jesus everywhere. He would have known him just as well as the rest of them. Doubtless, he had had intimate, personal moments with Jesus that no one else had shared. He had seen lepers healed. He had seen demons cast out with just a word. And he had done these things himself in the name of Jesus. He had gone through Israel proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And he had even baptized other would-be followers of Christ. He had been there when Jesus confronted the Pharisees. And Jesus had even saved his life when he came walking on the waves and calmed them with a word. The lives of both Mary and Judas had been completely transformed by Jesus of Nazareth. They could not have known beforehand growing up that their lives would be devoted to a carpenter from Galilee. Who, who dreams about that growing up? But once they met him, neither one of them would ever be the same again. It's the same thing with you and with me. Every one of us has been affected by Jesus of Nazareth. There came a moment in your life when you decided you were going to trust him as your savior and serve him as Lord. Probably a series of such moments. If every time it happened, it was increasing commitment to Jesus. You live differently because of things he said. The routine of your week is built around worshiping Jesus. You may have even traveled to a foreign country in deliberate discomfort to try and persuade other people to follow him. Even if you're not a Christian, you cannot escape the man Christ Jesus. Your entire culture is saturated with his words and his people. But if you are a Christian, all the most significant moments of your life have been stamped with his presence. How could Judas and Mary entangle themselves from Jesus Christ? They couldn't. Their whole story was changed because they knew Jesus. But why would they? Jesus had given them purpose and hope. 
He showed them how to live and he taught them why life was worth living in the first place. And the same thing is true for you. There's no way to untangle that knot that ties you to Jesus, whether you want to admit it or not. If you want to break that knot and separate yourself from Jesus, you cannot do it without causing serious damage. One of these two people has learned that to be true. The other one is going to have to learn the hard way, and he's not going to learn it until it's too late. Because although both Mary and Judas had decided to follow Jesus, they had done so for very different reasons. The motivations of their hearts were opposites. Mary followed Jesus with a generous attitude. She kept nothing back from her Lord. She was willing to give him everything. Judas, on the other hand, was only in it for what he could gain. He never gave Jesus anything. He only took from him. And because of this difference in their hearts, these lives that might have appeared to be on the same trajectory were in fact headed for very different destinations. Mary had always been delighted by Jesus. She snuck away from her chores to sit at his feet. And Jesus just could not refuse the genuine love she had for him. And even though her faith wavered at the death of her brother, she returned to his feet one more time to honor him as her Lord. As I said before, Lazarus and his family were not wealthy people. The fact that Mary had this expensive perfume does not indicate that they were wealthy. Quite the opposite. Judging by the reactions of the guests, we know from the other gospels it was not just Judas who cried out when this happened. This was probably the only thing of real value they had in that house. Nard came from East India. It's very difficult to get it, and it was very expensive. That alabaster jar held 12 ounces. That is almost a pint of pure nard perfume. And according to Judas, was worth nearly one year's wages. How much do you make in a year? About that much. Why would they have this then? If they're not rich, why do they have this? It has been suggested, and I think it's a good idea, that this was Mary's dowry. Saved for her wedding day as a financial investment. Obviously, marriage was very different back then. It was much more of a financial transaction. And a young woman needed something of value to bring to the marriage. Not just because it was like buying and selling. It was less about that than we tend to think. It was more about if we're going to come together and have a family, we both need to have something to make this work. It was a financial investment for her wedding day. And she took it and broke it at Jesus' feet. When that precious alabaster broke, that beautiful white stone that would have been intricately carved and, and carefully preserved, when it broke, that sound signaled not just the loss of money, but the loss of Mary's prospects as a bride. Without a significant dowry, it would be very difficult for her to find a worthy husband. No wonder Judas freaked out. But the Lord rebuked him and commended her. Because this was Mary finally giving everything over to Jesus. She had nothing left to hold back from him. It was all laid at his feet in a beautiful act of lavish worship. An irreversible act of worship. Because once that thing is broken, you're not putting it back in the jar. That is the attitude of a giver. Jesus has called us to give up everything and follow him. Just as the disciples left their nets. Just like Levi left his tax table. 
Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When we recognize what the kingdom of God is worth, we do not hesitate to give up everything to go after it. A giver does not count his money as his own. He sees it only as an avenue to exercise love. He knows that every dime he gives away is another shackle broken on his heart. A giver does not count her time as her own. She's not concerned with being amused and satiated every minute of every day because she knows that the greatest joys in life only come through patience and surrender. A giver does not even count his skills as his own. He is overjoyed at the thought that his abilities could be used for something greater than his own material gain. And he does not hesitate to use them for the sake of God and his people. A giver will give up everything because they know that in so doing, they're laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can never destroy. It's difficult being a giver. And many people would call you a fool. But as Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He died in the jungle, slain by the very people he came to help. But not one minute later, he came into a reward that made everything else seem dull by comparison. Mary had the same attitude, and she demonstrated that here in this story. Judas was not a giver. Judas Iscariot was a follower of Jesus, but he was only in it for what he could get out of it. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, he weighed everything by gain. When Mary broke her alabaster jar at Jesus' feet, all the greed that he had been suppressing erupted in one outburst of fury. And when Jesus rebuked him for it, he had finally had enough. Maybe Judas began with good intentions. Who knows? Perhaps when Jesus called him to be one of the twelve, his heart was so full and swollen with loyalty to his master He knew Jesus could work miracles. He had heard Peter's confession that he was the Messiah. But the soil in which those good seeds had been sown were full of thorns. We don't know when Judas began stealing from the money bag. But by now, it was an addiction for him. At first, the first time he probably did that, he probably broke out into a cold sweat. And he swore to God on his knees that he would never do it again as long as nobody ever found out. But the problem was not the thievery. The problem was the heart of a thief, and that did not change. Over those three long years, he seared his conscience every day until he thought nothing of helping himself to the gifts that had generously been given to Jesus. And it was no longer enough for him. He wanted Jesus to take power because he wanted the privileged position that would surely come along with it. He resented Jesus for failing to profit from his ministry. And when he was rebuked for wielding the teachings of Jesus like a weapon, a dark purpose entered his heart. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they get to Jerusalem, just a few days after this story, he went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's from Matthew 26. Because Judas could gain nothing further from a partnership with Jesus, he sold him out for a few silver coins. That is the attitude of a taker. A taker does not love God. He loves no one but himself. A taker will attach himself to Jesus or to the church 
because he thinks there's an opportunity to profit by it, whether financially or socially or any other way. While David said he would never offer anything to the Lord that did not first cost him something, a taker will not offer anything to the Lord unless he can get something out of it. A taker sees the pulpit as an opportunity to make money. And they end up just as depraved and just as ostentatious as any musician or Wall Street executive. A taker sees the church as a social ladder she can climb. She might be the bottom rung at work. Nobody might care about her at school. But here she's found some people that will admire her and she can climb that ladder. A taker sees worship music as an outlet for his creative passions, or the seminary as a place where he can distinguish himself academically. They might give lip service to the true purpose for these things, much as Judas demanded Mary give the money to the poor, right? It sounds so spiritual. People will do that. But in their hearts, they're only there to serve themselves. This is why you will often see a taker leave the church abruptly. If they can get somewhere else what they were trying to get at the church, a boyfriend, business connections, or an exciting show, they'll leave without giving it a second thought. In the classic movie, Citizen Kane, the main character, he's a fabulously wealthy newspaper tycoon. He has everything he could ever want, but his second wife despises him. They live in the most luxurious home. She wears the finest clothes, but there's a scene where she yells at him that it doesn't mean anything. She says, you never gave me anything in your whole life. You just tried to bribe me into giving you something. That's the heart of a taker. They don't give anything. They give bribes in order to get something back. They may work. They may sing. They may even preach for Jesus. But it's all for their own sake. And the minute they know that they have milked this whole Christianity thing dry, they'll sell Jesus out for a few pieces of silver. That's a taker. Jesus told us to give up everything. To follow him. Hold on, isn't that kind of narrow though? Why can't we join hands with Jesus and we'll work together for mutual benefit? Why does he demand, as Andrew Murray called it, absolute surrender? It is because God knows in his wisdom that the heart of a taker will not merely disrupt the life of a local church, but a taker's heart will dig the grave of its owner. The road of selfishness leads through a life of desolation, and it only ends in hell. Whereas the life of a giver, while it might seem impossible to give everything away, it's a life of liberation from the normal cares of this life. A giver is not owned by anything except Jesus Christ, and their life consists of deeper joys that will only continue forever in heaven. How you choose to act towards God as a giver or a taker will determine both your life and your destiny. Judas began well, but his selfishness made him a thief, a loud mouth, and a betrayer. That's what happens when you live your life as a taker. You become a thief. Every goal you pursue and every relationship you have becomes a matter of possession. You don't want to win the contest because of the joy of competition. You want to win so that you can have the victory. You can have the trophy. A taker cannot love anyone else. They can only own people and they work hard to conquer people. And then once they've conquered them, they despise them. A taker is a loud mouth. They bark orders. They scoff at even the possibility of pure motives. 
They may think they've got everybody fooled, but their mouth reveals the arrogant nature of their heart. And takers are traitors. A taker will not hesitate to betray any cause or any person if they will profit by it. A taker actually only withholds betrayal because they see that loyalty is a better investment. A taker might not leave his wife because he knows if I leave my wife, then that'll make more trouble for me. It's less trouble to stay with her. There's no love. He's just trying to take a stable lifestyle. If you live your life this way, you will drive away everything good and everybody who would love you. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. Think about that. Why is that? Why is covetousness idolatry? Because covetousness is the worship of yourself. I'm on the throne. Everything I do is for myself. All my labor, all my love, all my plans are only for the holy me sitting on the throne of my heart. A taker will live their life in wretched obliviousness. They have no idea. They don't care what happens around them as long as they're moving up. And that's how they evaluate every situation, up or down. But there comes a moment in every taker's life when they have to face themselves. They have to face what they've become. It says in Matthew 27, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Judas had a flash of reality. He suddenly realized what he had done and he went back to try to change it, but it was too late. These new friends that he thought he had made they weren't friends at all. And the silver that he had coveted no longer held any attraction for him. He had made his own life unlivable by betraying everything that he had ever loved for gain. And Judas took his own life. I used to work for a junk collection company. Very frequently would be called to clear out hoarders houses. These places were piled high to the ceilings with trash and filth. They smelled, they were dangerous to navigate, and the people who had filled them up were either full of shame or desperate to hold on to the mess that they had made. They had everything that they wanted. They had kept every single thing their heart had desired. But they had nothing worth having. Usually the family was long gone. No one dared approach them. And people die in houses like that crushed under the weight of their own stuff. It was like that for Judas. And it will be like that for you if you live your life as a taker. You may win what you want in the short term, but all your schemes are only going to lead to a hollow victory. That kind of person is living in hell long before they get there. And what does it profit a man, Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I like that ESV translation, forfeit. The old-fashioned old version is lose my soul. It's good. But you're not losing your soul like you lose your keys. You're forfeiting your soul. You're saying, I would rather have this stuff than my own soul. And what, what gain is that? You want to talk about profit and gain? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? <laughs> but look at what the Lord said about Mary. 
Truly I say to you, in Matthew 26, 13, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary gave up everything to follow Jesus. And she gained more than that. She had begun with childish faith. It was excitable. It was flighty. It was up and down until she was faced with the fact that she was not going to get everything from Jesus that she thought she could get. And it broke her for a little while. But she was able to learn from the faith of her sister, Martha, who did believe, and bring the only thing of value she had left and break it at Jesus' feet. Every hope and every dream that she had was in that bottle. A husband, a home, children. But she gave it all to Jesus. And in that moment, she gained freedom from those things. And they had no control over her anymore. We can become enslaved to the things that we love. It need not be material things. We can be in love with the past. Always trying to relive the glory days. Treasuring it to the point where you neglect what's right in front of you. You can't move on from the way things were. You can be in love with the present. You're unwilling to change anything about the way you are. You don't want to change it maybe because you're afraid or maybe you're just in love with the way things are and you hold on to it long past it should have been held on to. And we can be in love with the future, obsessed with our dreams, obsessed with our plans to the point of avarice, selfish greed. And the Lord knows. He knows that covetousness corrupts, which is why he commanded us to give everything away. And the minute we hear that, the minute you think of, should I give that away? You come up with a million good reasons why you don't have to. I do the same thing. We love to compare ourselves to Abraham, don't we? Abraham brought his son Isaac and the Lord told him to sacrifice your son. And because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, God didn't make him sacrifice his son. And we apply that passage to everything in our lives that is holding us back. Suspiciously, only to the things that would hurt to give up. Things that don't cost anything, no problem, take it. As long as we do that, guys, we're going to remain stuck. Holding on to the way things are, or were, or will be, will keep you in the same sins and the same struggles. But as fearful as it might be to smash an alabaster jar full of pure nard, that's the only way to salvation. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Paul said, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's Galatians 5.24. See what Jesus said about Mary again. She gained eternal life. And this is true in two ways. First, she had gained an immortal testimony. Her story is in all four Gospels and has been told in every church around the world for 2,000 years. Her willingness to give up everything has been an inspiration and an encouragement to countless people, as it is to us tonight. When you live your life as a giver, your life is a beacon of light in a dark world. You begin to treat people with love and respect because you're no longer a god in your own heart and they're just there living in the world that you've made. You've become a servant of the living God and you're humble and loving towards people. Other people see your example and they're motivated by it. And everyone around you becomes liberated in the same way. The shackles of self and the shackles of stuff fall off a little bit more every day. And God spreads the joy of Christ Jesus around the world through you. But there's a second way that Mary gained eternal life. She gained it the day that she called upon the Lord to receive her spirit. And she, as the Bible says, fell asleep. 
Now that part's not written in the Bible, but we know that it's true. Because Mary was willing to give up her life in the flesh, she not only found a new abundant life in the spirit now, but she had a glorious entrance into the final joy of salvation that will last forever and ever. Just imagine the treasures in heaven that were laid up for Mary. 300 denarii is a pittance compared with eternal riches like that. The Lord returns what you give to him with interest. He is a good father who will not allow his children to be satisfied with lesser things. God will not stand by and let you addict yourself to the cheap thrills and the little baubles of this world. He calls you to give up your lives for his sake. Not because he's a tyrant and he wants all these slaves bowing down before him, but because he knows that this is the only way that you will truly find life. And after this life, eternal life. Whoever finds his life will lose it, Jesus said. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Judas, the taker, became a betrayer and a suicide. While Mary, the lavish giver, mocked by all these so-called spiritual men, she went on to joy and immortality. Taking from God and living for yourself, sucking the world dry until you make yourself sick, that will leave you alone and desolate. Giving to God and letting him place new, better things in your hands leads to glory in this life as he uses you to affect people around you and eternal life in the next. And God is not commanding us to do anything that he has not already done himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. Jesus Christ gave himself up on the cross. And what did he gain by it? You, me, us. He despised the shame of the cross for the joy of eternity spent forever with his bride, the church. He gives salvation freely as a gift for anyone who will receive it by faith. And you know, takers will even bring their attitude to salvation. They think they can take salvation from God. Rather than viewing their sin as a tragedy, it's just a factor in the equation. They want heaven, not because it means life with Christ, but because it's the only alternative to hell. So they try to work the Christian system. They'll go to church, or they'll tithe, they'll serve, they'll even preach, because they think that will gain them eternal life. A Christian taker thinks he's got God right where he wants him. And now God has to let me into heaven, because I did all the things I'm supposed to. He does the bare minimum to secure his ticket to paradise, but he is terribly deceived. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. A boastful, covetous attitude will get nothing from God on the final day when every motivation of the heart is going to be exposed. But a giver knows that salvation is beyond them. What am I supposed to do? How can I earn salvation? Look at me. All they can do is throw their lives at Jesus' feet and beg for mercy. And in that moment, as they lose their lives in the world, we find them anew in Christ Jesus. 
So let us follow the example of our Lord and of Mary, his friend and disciple. Give up everything to follow Christ. The treasure is worth it, I promise you. Spurn the path of Judas Iscariot. Don't be a taker from the Lord. Break the alabaster jar of your life at his feet, and you will find that the life that he gives you in return is of infinitely more value than anything you might find down here.